I'm Leanne Spencer, founder of Body Shop Performance Limited, author, TEDx speaker, and your host. This is the Remove the Guesswork podcast, the show where I interview influential people in the health and fitness industry to bring you the latest ideas on how to optimize your mind, body, and well-being. Hello, welcome to the Remove the Guesswork podcast. I'm Leanne Spencer, your host. My guest this week is the author of the brilliant book called Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less. His name is Alex Sujung Kim Pang. Ariana Huffington actually wrote an introduction for the book, but Alex is a real force in his own right. He's the founder of the Restful Company, a consulting company in Silicon Valley. He's a visiting academic at Stanford University. He has a PhD from the University of Pennsylvania, and he's also the author of other books such as The Distraction Addiction, and he's written for Slate, Wired, Atlantic Monthly, and Scientific American, amongst other publications. I got Alex on the show because I read his book recently and absolutely loved it. I think rest and recovery are as important, if not more important, than the work and the training that we do. So I was really keen to get him on the show. And in this part one of a two-part episode, we talk about what motivated him to write the book. We talk about what is deliberate rest? What are the components of recovery? How does all that have an impact on creativity and focus? And And we get into all of that. We use case studies from the book. And I think you're going to find this a really interesting episode. And if you don't take anything else from this, but this, it's that recovery and rest is a skill you have to learn. It's a very deliberate thing that you need to put into your life to get more value from it. So I hope that you come to that conclusion. And if you would like a free copy of the book Rest, we're giving one away. All we need you to do is jump onto iTunes, leave us a review for this episode or for the show, but just mention this episode, mention the book, and we will enter you into a random draw. And in a couple of weeks after part two goes out, we'll announce the winner and we'll send you a copy of the book. So good luck if you're entering that and enjoy this episode. Alex, welcome to the show. Well, thanks very much for having me. No, I'm delighted that we managed to get you on. We've just talked a little bit about the book and how much my dog enjoyed it because she's had a go at a few pages as well. <laughs> Whilst, and then she rested, you'll be pleased to know. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, Dogs are very slept, good at that. She slept afterwards, yeah. Absolutely love the book. I've done a little bit of research on what you've done and your purpose, if you like, but it'd be great if you could talk to us a bit about why you wrote the book. What motivated you to write it? Sure. Well, The idea for the book started a few years ago. I had a sabbatical at Cambridge at Microsoft Research in one of their laboratories. And I had been there about a month or so. And normally I work as a consultant in Silicon Valley, which involves a lot of doing stuff for corporate clients, a lot of travel, jumping around from project to project. And so I had these three months where I was working on one thing. I was in one place, though my wife and I took advantage of being able to go to London and do other things on the weekends. And about halfway through it, I realized I was getting immense amounts of stuff done. I was having all kinds of ideas. I was reading tons of things. I was meeting interesting people. But I didn't feel the kind of sense of time pressure and sort of constant hurry that you do in California. And it started me thinking that, you know, this was something that I had lived with for so long that I had come to, like most of us assume, that in order to do really good work, you have to kind of perpetually overwork. Mm. And it started me thinking that, you know, maybe actually that was completely wrong, that in order to have really good ideas to do the work that we all want to do, Maybe it's actually necessary to figure out how to work less 
to slow down a little bit. And I started, when I got back to the States, I started looking at people like famous scientists and writers, people whose biographies I kind of had around the house, and realized that actually, when you look at the lives of people like Nobel Prize winning scientists or Pablo Picasso or such, you know, people who were super ambitious, who got incredible amounts of stuff done, you know, who are certainly very well known for their achievements and very often were working in very competitive kinds of fields. You find a pattern that looked a lot like the life that I had discovered when I was on sabbatical. These are people who often organized their entire lives around their work, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they make choices about where to live, sometimes about who to marry, based partly on calculations about whether it will help them do the work that they feel they were put on the world to do. But they didn't organize their days or, you know, they didn't spend their whole days working. Instead, what they did was worked very intensively for periods of maybe four or five hours, which seemed like an incredibly small number. And they spent an awful lot of time doing things that didn't look productive, but which clearly they got a lot out of. A lot of exercise, going on long walks, they had serious hobbies. And what I realized was that there actually is a bunch of scientific research in neuroscience and the psychology of creativity that helps explain why it is that those rest periods helped both kind of sustain their creative careers, but on an everyday basis also help them actually be more creative, help them have insights, have ideas or breakthroughs that their conscious minds couldn't quite get to. And so once I saw that this was a pattern that was very consistent and that there was some science that I thought could help explain it, I realized, you know, this is actually a story worth telling. And so that's where the book came from. Brilliant. And when was this? So the original idea happened a February evening in 2011. And the book itself, I started really thinking seriously about two years later. Mm -hmm. And so after that, The book itself was published at the end of 2016 and just came out in a new paperback edition with a lovely foreword by Ariana Huffington, which has been very gratifying to see. Well, indeed, yeah. And of course, she, well, she talks a lot about, I'm a contributor to her platform, Thrive Global, but I talk about her a lot whenever I speak to people, particularly her story about waking up in a pool of blood and that Uh, being her her literal wake-up call. And I know she does a lot now to promote sleep and to promote rest And yeah, I'm sure it was very gratifying to get her to write that forward. So how much did it change? Before we get into the book, how much Mm -hmm. did it change your working life and the way that you conducted your overall lifestyle? Yeah, partly it explained a bunch of things that I had kind of stumbled on. And then it also encouraged me to either try some new things or to improve some stuff that I'd already started. So, you know, for example, when I was writing my second book, a book called The Distraction Addiction, which is about technology and addiction and sort of the culture of distraction, for most of my life, I had been in the habit of starting writing like late at night. And, you know, assumed that this was the kind of romantic ideal of the, you know, of the writer who gets possessed by an idea and carry, you know, (laughs) and sort of works all night on it. And with a regular job and two kids, that was now impossible. It was unsustainable. And so I experimented for a little while with essentially flipping the day and getting up really, really early to write. 
and discovered after about two painful weeks that actually this is really fantastically productive. That there is something about working in the super early morning that turned that sort of unlocks a degree of creativity and productivity that I didn't have during the rest of the day. And one of the things that I found actually was that this was something that a whole bunch of the people I write about also followed. So I have a whole chapter about morning work and what it is about it that makes it really special. Another thing that I do, I take naps a lot more, or I am totally unabashed about them now. They're good for you physically, but they turn out also to be really good for you mentally. And I think also that I have become a lot more conscious about designing my days to try and match up my kind of peak periods of focus and attention with hard problems and to push other stuff that maybe is important but requires less attention to other parts of the day. Office workers and knowledge workers and professionals assume that every hour of the day is like every other, right? It's sort of like being in a factory, you know, and it doesn't matter if you do something at 9 a.m. or 5 p.m. or these days after the kids have gone to bed. But it turns out that just as our bodies, uh, you know, follow a kind of daily rhythm when, you know, we are more awake or of more alert we're hungry, et cetera. So too do our brains actually track those rhythms too. And I think a good bit more done if we are aware of those rhythms and we essentially respect them and follow them rather than try to work against or despite them. Mm. So those are the kinds of things that I've learned thanks to writing the book. Yeah, I completely agree with you on napping. I'm actually speaking to you now from a week away in South Wales. Ah. And every day I've been coming home and taking a nap. And mm-hmm. I get a little bit of mocking from my partner for it, but I don't care. I'm getting two forty-five and 60 minutes. So I'm sitting a little close to the wind in terms of the length of the nap, but it's mm-hmm. not affecting my evening sleep. I just feel more energized, more rejuvenated. And I used to be very dismissive. I used to be very dismissive of napping. So, you know, the evening is for sleep and the day is for working and doing and everything else. But I completely changed my mind. And these devices, which I haven't got around me at the moment, but our smartphones that we carry everywhere <laughs> with us. If we know we're going out for a day and a long night, we'll probably bring a little booster, perhaps a booster battery, mm-hmm. or we'll bring our charger so we can plug that precious thing in halfway through the day and retain the battery. Absolutely. Just the same for us. Yes. And that's the conclusion I've come to. So I'm completely with you on napping. No, well put. I'm someone who is sort of enough of a fan of coffee and green tea and other things so that Mm. I know how my body responds to different kinds of caffeine delivery systems. And despite that frighteningly high level of awareness, even just like a 20-minute nap in the afternoon provides a more sustainable charge than another double espresso. Your body responds to it better. And I find that I get more done with a little rest than I do trying to use that resting time to just kind of power through. So I'm absolutely with you on that. And I think that it also reflects the fact that cognitive work is actually pretty physically challenging, right? I mean, we think of it as just sitting in a chair, you know, sort of looking at a screen, but our brains are actually really, really demanding in terms of food and oxygen and, you know, and so on. And so it's no surprise that in a way that creative work or knowledge work follows some of the same kinds of patterns as exercise. 
Right? Mm. You know, there's a similar need for recovery. There's a certain value in intensivity. And figuring out how to balance the work and the rest turns out to be really important in both for yeah. some of the same reasons. And it's one of the reasons I was really keen to get you on the show because I think a lot of my audience and, and me personally can tend towards the under-recovered side of things, mm-hmm. kind of overworking or overtraining and not prioritizing rest and recovery. So let's get stuck into some of the ideas in your book. But firstly, yeah. what is deliberate rest? So the term deliberate rest is a play on this idea of deliberate practice. You know, people are probably familiar with it through Malcolm Gladwell's book and his talk about you know, the 10,000 hours rule. And deliberate practice is a particular kind of practice that is highly focused, that provides immediate feedback. And it's a kind of practice that you see adopted by people who go on to become, let's say, world-class violinists, for example, or really great athletes. These are people who don't just spend a lot of time practicing scales or the same maneuver over and over again. They're always working on very specific things. They're trying to improve very particular points of their practice. Deliberate rest is similar in the sense that it's rest that's designed to recharge your mental and physical batteries, but it's also time that gives our creative subconscious minds a chance to work on problems that we often can't solve through conscious effort or would take a lot longer to solve consciously. And it also helps sustain our creative lives and our creative careers. And I think the deliberate rest is also generally active rather than passive. So, you know, it's a lot more time outside rather than in front of the TV. Rest also turns out to be a skill, you know, something Mm. that we can cultivate and improve. Rest, I think, is a lot like breathing. On one hand, it's totally natural. But if you are a singer or you're a swimmer, you know how valuable learning to control your breathing can be for performance. Rest turns out to be the same way for creative people. Deliberate rest is also a partner to work rather than a competitor, right? The time we spend in deliberate rest, that's not time that we're stealing from our working lives. It's time that we're investing in it. Yeah, that's the point I really want to drive home for people, actually. mm Mm-hmm. It's something we should be prioritizing to improve our performance and our energy and our vitality rather than seeing it as an awe, uh, taking away from our performance or our, our time spent working and being productive. Yeah. I think for some people, the fact that it is similar to recovery periods in sports, right? Your body is doing all kinds of stuff when you're resting. You know, it's building muscles, it's doing other kinds of recovery, and that it is something that you can actually learn to improve, right? It's something that in a sense your creative mind kind of adapts to, and it's something that you can learn to get better at. I think helps some people who are very accustomed to thinking in terms of skills and ability and see their lives or see success as running through the perfection of those things. I think that makes deliberate rest, I think, a little more appealing. You know, it's something that you can actually get better at much as you can, you know, improve your golf game or your, your chess score. But the critical thing is that when you practice it, you're not taking away from work. It's a partner to it, and it's a way of kind of weaving work and rest together in a way that makes your life better. Yeah. Now, you mentioned in the book some very specific examples of writers Mm -hmm. and scientists who actually almost seem to prioritize the rest over the work because they know that that one key component of rest 
strongly dictates the output and quality of the latter, the work. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about maybe a couple of those examples? Sure. Well, you know, one of my favorites is, you know, Charles Darwin, who wrote The Origin of Species. As a young scientist, he's someone who overworks constantly. And eventually he reaches a point where he realizes that this doesn't really get him the results that he wants. The assumption is that great insights are the result of intensive work and long periods in which you, you know, risk burning out. And what he discovers, though, is that a different pattern works well for him. And he does his best work after sort of constructing a, a daily schedule where he does really focused work for about four or five hours and then quits. You know, he often stops in mid-sentence, according to his kids. And then he goes out and he has this walking path that he's constructed on the property. He calls it his thinking path. And he spends, you know, an hour or two out there just walking around, sort of letting his mind wander. And he often has some of his best ideas when he's out on his thinking path. Mm. And working in this way, he manages to write, what, 19 books, I think, over the course of 40 years and change the history of science. A second example who I like is Rosalind Franklin, who was an X-ray crystallographer. She provided a lot of the data that James Watson and Francis Crick used when they were figuring out the structure of DNA. Franklin was actually a mountain climber, Hmm. and she was one of the best women climbers of the 40s and 50s. There were actually alpine guides competed to climb with her because they would get into the newspaper because she would be the first woman to summit someplace in Italy or the French Alps or the Pyrenees. And her love of climbing, I think, exemplifies a pattern that we often see in very busy lives, which is people who are super ambitious and super competitive fields having these hobbies that turn out to be like expensive or dangerous or really time-consuming. And in a way, they seem kind of counterintuitive because, you know, these are people who really value their time, who are super strict about saying no to things that they don't think are going to have payoff, taking weeks off to go and climb the Alps or go, you know, go sailing. But it turns out that these are practices that are really restorative and that provide a very intensive kind of break from their sort of normal work and their normal lives. In a sense, it turns out for people like this, you have to have activities that are that engaging, that immersive, in order for them to be things that they're going to take seriously and that they're going to invest in. But it also turns out that these are activities that bear some interesting resemblances to their work. I mean, they provide some of the same kinds of rewards that come when work goes really well, but just in a very different environment, often in a much more physical and challenging sort of context. Mm. So I think that you know, they provide two nice examples of how deliberate rest plays out on a daily level in Darwin's case. And then with Franklin, how these super intensive kinds of hobbies can provide deliberate rest for people who have often much busier lives and who don't have quite the level of leisure or control Mm. over their daily schedules that Darwin has. But ultimately, these are both different kinds of rest that provide the same kinds of rewards and help you be more creative and extend your kind of creative life. 
Yeah. And that's why I wanted to really ask you for that definition of rest, because I think a lot of people think it's putting your feet up in front of the TV with a beer in the remote control, perhaps, or similar kinds of inactive forms of rest. Now, of course, what you're talking about is a much more active form of rest, a more dynamic form of rest, Mm -hmm. which is still nonetheless rest. And I want to kind of go down that route next, really. And we're going to talk more about the kinds of rest, the benefits of things like walking and taking breaks and so on. But what is the impact from a scientific point of view from resting on creativity and focus? Hmm. That's a great question. And it turns out that what scientists have discovered in the last 20 or so years essentially is that rest kind of charges up creativity and improves focus. These are two slightly different things. But I think what you see with the lives of really accomplished and creative people is that rest turns out to provide a period in which their creative subconscious minds are able to take on problems that they haven't been able to sort of solve through conscious effort. And the pattern is that you work very intensively on something and then almost immediately you go out and go for a walk or something like this. Mm. You know, and you see versions of this with people who will be working on something and feel like they need to clear their minds and get up from their desks and get a cup of coffee. And then in the middle of that, realize, wait, if I approach it this way, then I can solve the problem like this, right? This is a sort of experience that we all have had at some point in our lives. And what people who practice deliberate rest do is kind of make a science out of that. They make a habit of it. Mm -hmm. And they create time in their days so that this can happen. And in fact, one scientist talks about how he hates to admit it, but his subconscious mind is almost the better scientist because if he gives it time, it can come up with solutions that he himself can't come up with. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, rest is really important as a kind of playground for creativity. But it's also important for supercharging focus because focus actually takes a lot of energy. If you put people in those brain scanner machines, you see when you're concentrating, your brain is actually what of requires a lot of food and oxygen. And from a basic physical level, if you're not able to provide that, your brain isn't able to focus the way that it would like to, which is essential for both solving problems and for setting up the kind of mental conditions under Mm -hmm. which you can be your creative best. Okay, brilliant. Interested in finding out what your health IQ is? Jump on our website, bodyshopperformance.com and click on Take the Test. And it'll take you through to a very short two to three minute health IQ test. At the end of that, you'll get a scorecard based on your results and a free 39-page report built all around our six signals, which are sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, and fitness. So jump on the website, bodyshopperformance.com, and take our test. Finally, thanks for listening to this show. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard and it's added value to you, share the episode with someone who you think could benefit from it. And don't forget to leave a rating, a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.